according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me in the book of Proverbs once again, Proverbs 17. And uh, we're looking at verses 7 and 8. I'm right on the edge of a page turning, so... I'll be flipping this page back and forth. Verse 7 says, Excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. Which takes us to verse 8. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. And these, uh, these are connected. Uh, in fact, we've got a stretch of these here. 7, 8, 9, 10... Uh, we got uh, a string of Proverbs here whereby we see the destructive damage that can happen within our society, within our culture, within uh, the community. It's not just that lying is bad, but uh, the, the deceit in public life, the lying uh, in, uh, in the community uh, has impact, uh, particularly among those that should be trustworthy, those that should be responsible, those that are in positions of uh, of esteem in the culture that is the nobility and so when we talk about the uh the nobility versus the uh the noble versus the ignoble okay the noble versus the fool um we're talking on a sociological basis between uh people in our community that we call them fine upstanding members of our society what does that mean that means that uh, we respect them, we trust them, we, we find them uh, reliable, uh, we hold them to a higher standard because of, of the esteem that we have for them. And then there's the underclass, there's the, the fool, uh, the ignoble, if you will. And we really have no expectations from them uh, because why would we? What, what would we trust them with? What would we, uh, what would we esteem them for if, if they make a statement about uh, about something, well, okay, uh, but that's not uh, because they're not the fine, upstanding members of the community that uh, that our our uh, common uh, citizens would would look to. Then we we probably wouldn't pay much attention to anything that they had to say when it comes to how how we run our city, how we run our town, things of that nature. All right, well, we'll get back to that here this morning. Let's open the word of prayer, pick up where we left off last week, shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the blessing of your word. We thank you, Father, that the Bible is the living and abiding word of God. And Father, it is a blessing for us to study, uh, to show ourselves approved. So we call upon your faithfulness, Father, to open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Is the recording still going on? We doing well? All right. I thought I heard a change in the... I'm very sensitive to uh, these recordings since a couple weeks ago. All right. Proverbs 17. Now, um, excellent speech is not fitting for a fool, much less are lying lips to a prince. We have statements here of what's inappropriate and what's very inappropriate. 
and uh, things that are inappropriate under any circumstances become even more inappropriate under certain circumstances. And that's uh, the intensification of what's happening here. That's why we have the phrase, much less. Because it's bad for everybody. I mean, lying is wrong in every circumstance. Um, most circumstances, all right? Lying is a sin, uh, in, as a sin of the tongue. We're going to talk about all the sins of the tongue. Gossip, slander, um, maligning, all these things. They're all sins of the tongue. They all reflect a rebellion against the plan of God. And we'll discuss why that is. And uh, what is fitting, what is not fitting in any circumstance, much less uh, with the noble, much less with the leaders of your culture, of your society. So uh, in this, and I failed to uh, jot my slide down, so let's just look at it right there. All right. Speech must be fitting, that is appropriate or proper. And there are two illustrations that are especially unbefitting. And the idea of appropriate, right, proper, let your speech be seasoned as with salt, we're told, Colossians 4, 6, that there is appropriate communication, inappropriate communication. And it's uh, with respect to uh, propriety. And that centers on who God is and who we are and, and the blessings of uh, being in the image of God. So Psalm 19, 14, that says, uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Obviously, as you think in your heart, so you speak. As you think in your heart, so you are. The uh, What comes out of your mouth is a reflection of your heart condition. That's why we want our hearts to be molded by the word of God. And, uh, and then beyond that, of course, is the standard of God himself. God is what he is. God is who he is. And one of the fundamental issues of God's existence is that God is a communicator, that God communicates amongst Trinity. He communicates amongst himself, that he communicates to his creation. That's why so much of his creation is, in fact, communicative in uh, the way that plants and animals and humans and angels are all designed to communicate. And so it's got to be acceptable in God's sight. Likewise, uh, Colossians 4, 6, let your speech be seasoned as with salt. This will be one of our memory verses in our summer Colossians memory project. 15 weeks of scripture memory, 31 verses in uh, Colossians. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should. That's an ought to, that's a fitting that you will know how it is fitting to respond to each person. And so the appropriateness of our communication is spoken. And here we have the contrast between the fool and the noble. The the Hebrew word for fool is the nabal, N-A-B-A-L, or Nabal, if you remember Abigail's husband. His name was Nabal. And so that will help you to remember Nabal is the fool. And, And this is in particular the social fool as opposed to um, it's not the common word for fool in Proverbs. We've had fool repeatedly in our Proverbs series uh, because we want to acquire wisdom and we don't want to be the fool. We don't want to be the naive. We don't want to be the simple. We don't want to be uh, the sluggard. There's a lot of characters in Proverbs that represent uh, foolishness uh, in, in terms of a, a lack of wisdom 
Because wisdom is, is, the over, is the provision to overcome your foolishness. That God's wisdom, uh, as, you, as you learn it, as you live it, as it shapes who you are, then you stop, you, you, you're getting rid of your foolishness. And that's, that's a good thing. It's called growing up in the Word of God. Um, the Nabal fool, on the other hand, has bigger issues involved than just a wisdom deficiency. He has other issues, including a darkened mind, including uh, the, the social damage that, that he inflicts upon himself and upon others, see. And so really Nabal, while we keep using fool as a translation, I think it's, uh, there, there's shades of this that we probably need to expand upon to explain it in a better way, particularly in a context here and in Isaiah 32 where the fool is distinct from the noble, So it's a noble versus noble contrast. And the noble, as we'll see it here, the the, uh, Nadib, when we get to, so we have Nabal and Nadib. They both start with N, Nabal and Nadib. The Nadib is truly the noble, uh, more more than just a political aristocracy. It comes down to the attitude, the noble uh, fellow citizens, the no the the noble uh, the nobleness of uh, of culture, and so we could have a, a social fool and a social uh, nobility with respect to our community. And we'll talk about more of that, I suppose. Uh, let's turn over to Isaiah thirty-two. I don't think we did this last week. Isaiah thirty-two. And. You know, there's a broad stat- strata of um, people in our society. How do we relate to one another as a culture? How do we relate to one another as, in our communities? And, uh, and who is it that we select for our leaders? And keeping in mind, of course, how unique the... Uh, the <laughs> American experience is, and you go back through all of recorded human history, and the privilege and blessing of being able to uh, to elect our own representatives, our own leaders, it's pretty unique. It's pretty rare. It's pretty recent. It's uh, certainly, uh, you know, the, the Egyptian people never got to pick who they wanted to have for Pharaoh. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, Romans never got to pick who they wanted to have for their Caesar. You know, and it's, it's never been the case that when you have an emperor or a king or a tyrant or whatever you have, um, sometimes they became such because they were born into it from their from, uh, or, or they assassinated the previous king and made themselves king, in uh, in things like that. So our experience is is the exception rather than the rule, and the idea that we can select our leaders is is a grace upon grace provision for the church age. And, uh, and different things there. But even beyond the national level, on a local level, we, uh, we still will have a contrast between worthy and unworthy fellow citizens. And, uh, and so here's the contrast in, in Isaiah 32. Behold, a king will reign righteously, and princes will rule justly. And that's a good thing. I mean, this is the millennial future. This is what Israel can look forward to. Humanity can look forward to this in the millennial kingdom. And, uh, and until God makes it happen, it's never going to happen. We're not going to bring it about through human effort. Are we going to bring about perfect government or perfect environment or perfect politics? Each will be like a refuge from the wind and a shelter from the storm. Both, that's both the king at the top and then the princes under him in, in regional and local administrations. 
like streams of water in a dry country, like the shade of a huge rock in a parched land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be blinded, and the ears of those who hear will listen. And uh, benefits here too, with respect to when you have God Himself on the throne, when Jesus Christ is reigning in the millennium, not only do we have perfect government, but then it benefits all of culture, all of society. And uh, those that that are hungry for the Word of God, it's going to be a time of maximum Bible teaching in, uh, in, uh, this, uh, in this way. All right. The mind of the hasty will discern the truth and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak clearly. There's going to be adjustments that are going to be made on the basis of that. Verse 5, no longer will the fool be called noble. All right, no longer. Which means that leading up to this, that's kind of the <laughs> kind of the way things go sometimes, all right, prior to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Until we have a perfect king on the throne of David in Jerusalem, then we're going to have to deal with the fact that um, in our culture, in our society, in our generation, uh, there's going to be many fools they are going to be called noble. And there's going to be many truly noble people they are going to be called fools. And that's what happens when good is called evil and evil is called good and things are turned upside down and backwards in, uh, in uh, our culture. And those who have the truth are going to be called liars. And those that are living in a, in a cultural delusion are going to be called uh, scientific and, and modern. And, uh, and we're going to be called uh, primitive and, and uh, mythological and, and, uh, and all the rest. So no longer will the Nabal be called Nadib, will the fool be called noble, or the rogue be spoken of as generous. Now this is going to be significant too because what we're going to understand is the fundamental concept of nobility is generosity. That's the etymological basis for the Nadib, is that he is open-handed, he is generous. And the simplicity of generosity is, uh, is the underlying concept for all nobility. And so the use of it here as a description is, is interesting because you have the fool contrasted with the rogue in parallel poetry and then you have the noble parallel with the generous. So don't let the rogue be spoken of as generous. Now you know who the rogue is, right? The rogue is the one you're, you're warning your daughters about. The rogue is the one you're... you're, you're there can be roguish girls too, and, and you warn your sons about uh, the the strange woman. Okay, and so Proverbs is warning about the strange woman, and and uh, Isaiah here is warning about the rogue, and uh, and these are the these are the uh, worldly minded individuals, whether they're saved or not, the worldly minded individuals that would lead a believer into um, a lifestyle that's not biblical, into uh, realms of living that are that are not pleasing to God. And that's the rogue, and we get that. And, and Hollywood romanticizes it, and it's uh, always pop culture will celebrate the, the renegade, you know, and you get the, um, you know, I mean, going back to, um, they, they make a hero, an anti-hero out of a, out of a rogue that, well, you know, deep down he's really a good guy. He's just, you know, um, and so they want to celebrate. Yeah, he's a womanizer and he's a thief and whatever, and and I'm thinking about, you know, 
James Dean and you get this rebel without a cause and you just get the whole concept that you know it's it's uh, it's a great thing to be wild and young and break the rules and make your own rules and and we celebrate the rogue when it comes to many of these uh, heroes in literature and in in uh, movies all right verse 6 for a fool speaks nonsense <laughs> i mean seriously we're listening to this guy you look at who's elected to Congress and thinking, really? You know, what kind of a nabal is now an elected representative from Brooklyn, for example? You know, not to name names or anything, but there it is. Um, <laughs> a fool speaks nonsense. His heart inclines toward wickedness. See, it's beyond just a wisdom deficiency. There's actually uh, a larger issues at work to practice ungodliness and to speak error against the Lord. There's a hostility against anyone trying to live a biblical lifestyle. Why can't you just live, live and let live and let well enough alone and, and you know, you do your thing and be wicked and whatever and uh, we'll do our thing and be righteous and whatever. And, and, uh, but no, they will insist. They will be a hostile speaking against the Lord. You will bake that cake. And that's because the tyranny will not allow you to to function in your biblical convictions. To keep the hungry person unsatisfied. To withhold drink from the thirsty. Well, why would you want a hungry person to stay hungry or to stay just barely eking along or a thirsty person to stay thirsty? Why do you want to permanently keep an underclass an underclass? Why do you want to keep them beholden to you and your your uh, provision. Well, I think we know why. As for a rogue, it says in verse 7, his weapons are evil. He devises wicked schemes to destroy the afflicted with slander, even though the needy one speaks what is right. Boy, the damage that gets done, especially when they're in charge, especially when they can seize the reins of power and, and get their own way. But the noble man devises noble plans. That makes sense. And by noble plans, he stands. And uh, what a a contrast. All right. So really, here in Proverbs 17, we've got this in one verse. This verse 7 all by itself really has this fool versus noble contrast that uh, gets the longer development there in Isaiah 32, verses 5 through 8. And, and so in this setting now, in our, in our society, in our culture, in our communities, we can identify the Nabal all around us, the Nabalim, they're everywhere, and then we can identify the noble. And the noble are, uh, I believe, if they're properly oriented, the noble are going to be born-again believers adjusted to the plan of God that want to be salt and light in their communities, see, and uh, beyond that, there can be the unregenerate nobility that have a personality uh, that, is, that is generous. They can, uh, they're not shaped by the Word of God. They're shaped by human wisdom and philosophy. Um, you know, there's some, there's some secular individuals that have a politics we can resonate with, but they don't have a spiritual uh, ba- uh, underpinning for, that, for those politics. And so while we're delighted that there's a certain political uh, resonance, we don't want to confuse that with real fellowship and with true spiritual values. 
Am I making sense? So we want to be very clear. And, and maybe the, big, the easiest, Doug came out of Mormonism, for example. Mormonism will have a secular political outlook that will resonate in a lot of like-mindedness with a, a typical evangelical conservatism in such that, you know, they're, they're anti-abortion and they're pro-life and that they've got, uh, they, they would prefer judicial restraint instead of judicial activism in the courts. I, I think there's a lot of politics that would resonate, but don't confuse secular political, you know, uh, similar politics to the real spiritual underpinnings for what motivates that kind of thinking. That's the fellowship we're supposed to have. And that's salt and light with the Word of God. All right. Now, with respect to this, um, excellent speech, uh, which is really excessive speech. I prefer to retranslate the, the excellent with excessive, because I think that's what's going on here. Excessive speech. And it's wrong in every case. Just like in, in 7b, lying is wrong in every case. The speech is not uh, excellent. The speech is excessive. Excessive speech is inappropriate for everyone. I don't care who you are. If you talk too much, you're going to say something wrong. If you talk too much, you're going to say something. Maybe it's not wrong, but it's, it's just inappropriate. It's going to be offensive. It's going to be unintentionally, if nothing else, you're just going to say something because you just took it too far. So just shut up already. All right? Excessive speech is inappropriate for everyone, and that's undeniable. And we have it in Proverbs ten nineteen, Job eight. Uh, look at those chapters in Job eight two, eleven two, fifteen two, eighteen two, and in all those cases, is Job's accusers saying, "Boy, you sure talk a lot, <laughs> you know." And in all your words, I'm still not convinced. And nevertheless, I mean, we're talking about a book that goes one of the oldest books of the Bible, maybe the oldest book of the Bible. It's, it's over 3,000 years old, the book of Job, and it's still just as applicable today because people to this day will attempt to, when they can't win the argument with logic, they attempt to win the argument with volume, uh, the loudness of, or just with um, just sheer overwhelming multiple words. They just keep going, 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 and wow, they sure said a lot. They must be true. It must be right. And uh, no, you're, they're, they're, they're saying nothing. They're saying a whole lot of nothing. And no matter how much you multiply zero, it's still zero. Uh, they're not saying anything at the end of their diatribe. Now, uh, since it's inappropriate for everybody, it is much less, or most of all, it is most inappropriate for the naval. It is, it is most inappropriate. So anybody in the world needs to limit what they're talking about. Uh, that shorter speech is, is better than longer speech and its edification value. Because the longer it the longer it rambles, the worse it gets, and that's true for everybody. Most of all, it's true for the social, the sociological fool, the sociological naval, the antithesis of the sociological noble. <coughs> and the more he rambles, I mean, and it started off bad, and so the longer he rambles, um, the less. Anybody wants to listen to it. Same thing with lying. Same thing with false statements. Same thing with deceptive speech. Deceptive speech is inappropriate for everyone, most of all to the noble. Most of all to the noble. And this is why, um, again, it becomes 
rather political when you recognize that a lot of politicians are some of the best liars we have because they learn how to lie and make it sound like it's true. Or they learn how to betray their lies and, and, and come across like, well, they couldn't help it, it wasn't their fault, somebody else uh, outvoted them or, or whatever, when the fact is they never intended to vote that way in the first place. And uh, it was a lie when they made it as a campaign promise. So uh, lying. And then we have to deal with the issues here of the noble, the nadib, N-A-D-I-Y-B, the Hebrew word here for noble, which really speaks to somebody who is so inclined, willing, generous, or noble. That's the idea of nobility is willingness, generous, the inclination, the inclination to, um, to benefit society. That's nobility, right? And really that's what it comes down to. Your social nobility, they're inclined to benefit the, uh, their, their community, whereas the social uh, outcast, the social nabal, he's inclined to, uh, to harm the community. That uh, the more fools you have, uh, the more damage gets done in your, in your uh, culture, in your community. And it just drags the whole community down. The whole culture is brought down because the number of fools has been multiplied. So, uh, as far as the re- uh, these verses should be pretty simple. Let's run through them. Uh, not only um, here, but back in chapter 12, we dealt with verses about lying, deception. Proverbs 12, 9, Better is he who is lightly esteemed and has a servant than he who honors himself and lacks bread. So honoring yourself. Uh, Proverbs twelve twenty two, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. You know, I think instead of Proverbs twelve nine, that should be Proverbs twelve nineteen. Let me make a note on that. Proverbs twelve nineteen. 19 and 22. Because verse 19 says, truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Uh, Psalm 31, 18. You should all know these. I think some of these are some of the earliest verses my mother ever taught me as a child. I don't know why my mother had so many occasions to teach me Bible verses about lying. <laughs> no, yeah, I do. I'm lying. All right, uh, Psalm thirty-one, eighteen. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak arrogantly against the righteous with pride and contempt. And beyond personal untruths, but we see the the community impact of this. We see the cultural impact of this. Notice. The, uh, the target of this liar's uh, uh, antagonism, the target of this liar's antagonism is the righteous. They're speaking arrogantly against the righteous. So these liars are hostile to believers living by the Word of God with pride and contempt. So we, we can see the attitudinal issues that uh, are promoting those lies. Of course, Exodus 20 and verse 16 is the, in the Decalogue of Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. 
And uh, usually this is, uh, you know, the simplistic understanding of this is just uh, personal untrue statements in terms of lying. But there's also the community aspect of this whereby you are in a court proceeding, you are under oath, and you are making a, an, a, an affirmation that is going to be entered into evidence and accepted as the truth uh, in, a, in a... What is a judicial proceeding? A judicial proceeding is where the community is assembled uh, attempting to ascertain the truth of a matter. And so this now becomes the community truth if in fact you are perverting, uh, committing perjury in uh, lying in your testimony. But you should not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, there's a target, there's a victim, there is a, and that is the neighbor you should be loving. It's not loving to lie to your neighbor. Leviticus 19.11 You shall not steal, nor deal uh, falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. There's a variety of ways that you can defraud. You can steal by withholding. You can defraud by a partial truth. You can lie by... Uh, telling part of the truth and not all of the truth. There's other uh, shades of this, and I think uh, Leviticus here hits them all. Not just under law in the Old Testament, but under grace in the New Testament. Lying uh, displeases God, and it's wrong in every stewardship, in every dispensation. Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. The reason why Christians don't lie is not because of the Ten Commandments, not because we're under law. We're not under law. We've never been under law. But we are children of truth, born by the God of truth, indwelt by the Spirit of truth, and uh, we should be uh, renewed by the truth of the Word of God, and lying has no part of that, as far as that goes. All right, so you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's our uh, privilege in the body of Christ. 1 Timothy 1.10 Don't know what it is about today, but boy, our driveway is just a busy traffic thing this morning. All right, 1 Timothy 1.10 Backing up to verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. We don't throw away our Old Testament just because we're church-age believer priests, but we want to learn from it. We want to use that lawfully, and we want to use grace gracefully. And uh, the worst thing is to try to use grace lawfully or to try to, <laughs> try to uh, abuse things. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for fornicators, that's immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. What I find striking about this list is how murderers and liars are put together, how fornicators and all these things are put together. And, and we, we would tend to you know, have shades to our sins and we put murderers up at the very bad, you know, top of the list, murder is extra bad, uh, and, and other things are, are bad, 
uh, but I wouldn't, you know, execute you for them. And then other things are bad, but I wouldn't imprison you for them. And then others are bad, but I wouldn't really, you know, fine you for them. You know, we have degrees of punishment whereby we have execution, imprisonment, fining, uh, and then just social ostracism or mockery. You know, we've got other, <laughs> we've got other ways that we deal with, with one another uh, culturally. And, and we tend to put these on a scale. But here's a passage of Scripture that's taking murder and fornication and homosexuality and, and lying and, and combining them together in this, uh, in this way. Perjury? You know? Consequences for perjury are, uh, in the Old Testament, could be quite dire. Because if you're perjuring yourself hoping that somebody else gets a punishment, I believe you should get that punishment. You should get the punishment you were hoping your victim would receive. In some cases, maybe that's death. If, uh, if you were lying about uh, something that was going to make your victim worthy of death, are you kidding me? You know, um, that's to me, that's extraordinary. When a, um, and, and, you know, um, a woman lies about a rape and a guy goes to prison for 30 years. <laughs> and then she admits that she lied about it the whole time. She committed perjury. Uh, should she not go to prison for 30 years? Should she, I mean, his life was ruined. In any event, we, uh, our culture is so off of biblical norms anyway, it's interesting. Sad. All right, so that's 1 Timothy 1.10. Perhaps most of all to the noble. Now why do we say this? Perhaps most of all to the noble. If lying is wrong in virtually every circumstance... Okay, when is lying not wrong? When when are you allowed to lie and not be a sinner? Do, can we answer that? Ooh, here's a extra credit for the day. All right, when you're Ruth, or no, when you're uh, Rahab, and you're hiding spies on your on your roof, and you let them down, and they escape the town, and then soldiers come. Why are you allowed to lie in those circumstances? Yeah, it's curious. Well. So, yeah, so, and she's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. She's in Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, she hid the spies. So she told, she made an untrue statement and it was by faith. Jesus made a statement that was factually not true. But he did so as a rhetorical device of instruction. And Jesus never sinned. Okay. There are other circumstances by which a false statement is acceptable in the plan of God, I believe. And Ralph Braun would call it dishonorable communication. But in the permissive will of God, it is, it is useful because it edifies, it glorifies God, it serves to further God's purposes. See? And so typically in, uh, you know, in, in warfare, you are allowed to deceive your enemy <laughs> In warfare, you're allowed to build a big army under Patton and make the Germans think that they're going to invade Calais when really the real invasion was at Normandy. All right, you're allowed to uh, you know put a bunch of soldiers inside a horse and push it into the into Troy. You know, deception is war, and it's always been war, and it's been war in the history of the world. Deception has been a, a faction, uh, a feature of war, uh, and and God includes that in scripture i believe it was an act of espionage that that ruth was that rahab was 
participating in uh, as the prologue to an, a military invasion. The troops were going to be invading Jericho and as a military operation or an espionage operation. You know, your spies are allowed to lie when they're uh, in service of, of their nation. All right. <coughs> lying is usually a sin, okay? And lying is usually a sin for everybody. But it's a bigger sin and it's more serious and it's a bigger deal when it's the nobility that are lying. When it's your king, when it's your leaders, when it's your society leaders. And uh, when they lie, when it's, your, uh, when it's your pastor, when it's your, in the family, if it's a husband or a father, it's the, when it's the leadership of an organization, when it's the leadership of a group of people, then those lies are multiplied, that the impact of those lies become more destructive. Because uh, the people that are depending upon those leaders then are, um, are, are ruined. I mean, they are harmed because trust has been betrayed. Because, uh, because you know, the wife is supposed to be trusting her husband. The children are supposed to be trusting their parents. The, the congregation is supposed to be trusting their shepherd. The, um, the uh, citizens uh, are, are relying upon their political leaders to, to be, to be uh, people of integrity, to have the same rules for everybody and not just, you know, if, if, if I'm going to abide by the laws, if I'm going to pay my taxes, if I'm going to if I'm going to submit to the regulations that are over me, you know, I expect everybody to obey the laws and submit to the regulations. We're all under the same regulations. And if, if I'm just a serf that's under the arbitrary rule of some tyrant and they don't live by the laws they're putting me under, well, why should I be under those laws? And, and why, why are they entitled to flaunt what they expect me to submit to? And that's just tyranny, see. And in the human experience, there is uh, the, the, the humanity that's in the image of God that views the injustice as defiance of, of, of God's order. And so really lying is the starter. This lying is the first step to tyranny. That lying by your government when they are not truthful with you uh, means that they're not trustworthy and there's other ways that they are abusing you. And that's why, again, in, in, in Proverbs 17, we're going from lying to the bribery. A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, it prospers. Because once we've corrupted public life, once our civic life is corrupted, where truth no longer matters, well, if truth no, matter, no longer matters, then Katie, bar the door. Everything else is, is, is in bounds now, Right? in terms of, of bribing your government, bribing your judges, in terms of everything else, whatever you can get away with is what you can get away with. And, uh, you know, you, if you uh, didn't get away with it, you should hire better lawyers next time and get away with it next time, right? Or I mean, it's just sad when you come to a corrupted civic life along this, uh, along this line. You know, Psalm 101, when Jesus takes the throne... He's going to have an administration with no liars. Psalm 100. And I'm looking forward to this. 
I will sing Psalm 101. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will give heed to the blameless way. When will you come to me? I will walk within my house in the integrity of my heart. Now this is David singing the praises of Yahweh, but he's anticipating the arrival of God Himself. And it really becomes the the constitution for the millennial kingdom because David's words are in fact prophetic of Jesus' words when Jesus runs His administration. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not fasten its grip on me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will know no evil. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. My eyes shall be upon the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in a blameless way is the one who will minister to me. Could you imagine if a president takes office and then he announces on his inauguration day that he's filling his cabinet with born-again believers that live their lives according to the standard of the Word of God. That are living their lives transformed by biblical truth. That the only, the only people in his administration are going to be God-fearing believers living daily in the Word of God. Yeah? That's what this verse says. And this is what Jesus' administration is going to be like. He who practices deceit shall not dwell within my house. They're fired. Get out of here. He who speaks falsehood shall not maintain his position before me. Every morning I will destroy all the wicked of the land so as to cut off from the city of the Lord those who do iniquity. And I believe throughout the millennial kingdom, you know, unbelievers may come and they may visit Jerusalem. They won't stay overnight. To be caught in Jerusalem when the sun comes up, in the morning, when Jesus Christ awakens to destroy the wicked? No, you don't want to be in Jerusalem at that point of time. So, uh, deceptive speech is most inappropriate to the noble, to the leaders of the community. Now, the, the adjective Nadib that speaks of uh, generosity here, it's number 5081 in the Strong's Concordance. And, and these verses are, are interesting to me. So let's take a look at them, starting with Exodus 35. And some of these verses are going to speak about nobles, and some of these verses are going to speak about generosity, and some of these verses will speak about both. But the vocabulary is the same. And I think the, uh, the applications are, are quite striking. Uh, Exodus 35. And uh, when it comes to building the tabernacle, in Exodus 35, 4, Moses spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded, saying, take from among you a contribution to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. This is our term for nobility. This is our term for noble. It's a willing heart. It's not a 10%. It's not a tithe. It's not a have to. It's not a requirement under law in the construction of the tabernacle and likewise in Solomon's day in the construction of the temple. The giving was a free will giving. It was a, it was a voluntary contribution based upon a noble heart, a generous heart, a willing heart. 
Let him bring it as the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet material, fine linen, goat's hair. And this is everything that was supposed to be brought. And uh, down to verse 22, this is what they did. In verse 20, it says, All the congregation of the sons of Israel departed from Moses' presence, everyone whose heart stirred him. There's a, there's a, um, a movement that happens there, and it comes from the lavav, the heart. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him came and brought the Lord's contribution for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose hearts moved them, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets and articles of gold. So every man who presented an offering of gold to the Lord. That's the generosity that's spoken there presented an offering who was generous, willing to the Lord. David spoke of this in Psalm 51, 12, when he's confessing his Bathsheba sin. David knows that there's nothing Levitical that's going to save him. <laughs> that the Levitical, uh, the consequences of law for a, 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 an adulterer and for a murderer is Death. And, uh, and uh, under Levitical circumstances, law would execute David twice. But it's curious. So he's confessing, he's repenting. He uh, is praying, asking for a forgiveness, asking for a washing and a cleansing that law can't give him, only God can. And then in, in verse 10, when he says, uh, well, verse 9, he says, Hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, what kind of a spirit? Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Which was possible in the Old Testament, right? We can't lose the Holy Spirit, but Old Testament believers could. And then he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me, here we have it, sustain me with what kind of a spirit? willing, generous, noble. He said, sustain me with a nadib spirit, a nadib ruach. And so uh, we identify with this. This is what God wants. He loves the cheerful giver. He doesn't want us to serve grudgingly or under compulsion. He doesn't want us to do anything in, in a grumbling way or out of a sense of have to. He wants us to do everything we do in a willing way, in a generous way, in a thrilled way that is just so excited, so generous. Wow, I wish I could do more. That's the, the Nadib attitude in, uh, in all that we give and in all that we do. Other illustrations include Job 12.21. And uh, it's a good passage with respect to um, oh, culture and uh, different people of different social standing uh, within your society. And so um, in verse 17, he makes counselors walk barefoot and makes fools of judges. Talking about God and his sovereignty and how he interacts with our society. 
He loosens the bond of kings and binds their loins with a girdle. He makes priests walk barefoot and overthrows the secure ones. He deprives the trusted ones of speech and takes away the discernment of elders. You know, and when you talk about who are the respected people in your community, there's a variety of different occupations and positions and places in community. And uh, God is, is involved in these things. He pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. And these are the Nadib nobles that we have in our community, in every community. So he pours contempt on nobles and loosens the belt of the strong. And so really, um, we should learn uh, uh, the fear of the Lord. We should learn to operate in his, in his word, in his grace. We should not get full of ourselves if we happen to occupy a position of nobility. Just don't get prideful over that because God can bring that down if we lose our, uh, if we lose our fear of the Lord, if we use, lose our, our first, uh, leave our first love. How about Job twenty one twenty eight? And... Um, this is an answer. Job is giving an answer to Zophar in this chapter. And he says, uh, Behold, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the nobleman? Where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? And uh, so he's, he's trying to get ahead of the argument that Zophar is making here, that accusing Job, blaming Job for his own fall. So where is the house of the nobleman? Where is the tent, the dwelling place of the wicked? And, and you, could, you can. I mean, you can look at your culture and you can make an assumption based upon a person, based upon where they live, the zip code, the part of town they live in, the kind of house they live in. And the nobleman, you know, where do the, uh, where do the rich fancy people in Austin, what, what neighborhood do they live in? You know, we, do we have parts of town that, that we... That we identify as, as, uh, as that. And then are there parts of town that we identify that, that other people live in that are, that are less valued, that are less uh, um, culturally esteemed? See? Where is the tent? Where is the dwelling place of the wicked? And, and really, um, what Zophar was going to say here is, you know, look what happened to your house. Look what happened to your children. Look what happened to your property. Look what happened to your wealth. And uh, and so forth. All right. Have you? It goes on. Have you not asked the wayfaring men, and do you not recognize their witness? For the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity, and they will be led forth at the day of fury. Basically, Job, you're getting what you're getting what uh, is is coming to you because you've been hiding that wickedness all this time, and now everyone is traveling and telling the story of the downfall of Job. Because you know, once everybody starts saying it, it must be true. Job 34.18. Now here's Elihu, and Elihu is, is not rebuked uh, at the end of the book. And so the, the Elihu chapters are usually thought of as the Lord himself speaking through, uh, through a servant here. Um, but it's curious. Verse 16, if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound words of my sound of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? 
Shall one who hates justice rule? Will you condemn the righteous mighty one? And really, Job did. Job accused God of being unfair. Job was condemning to the injustice he felt that that Yahweh had afflicted him. Who says to a king, worthless one, to nobles, wicked ones, who shows no partiality to princes, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all the works of his hands. In a moment they die, at midnight people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away without a hand. For his eyes are upon the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. And so Elihu is right here. I mean, God is above all of us, and God is in charge. Anyway, here's the uh, noble ones. And uh, in, in parallel with the king, and in contrast to the worthless one or the wicked ones. Nobility. Psalm 83, 11. Here's a wish prayer. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeba, and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. So that's uh, that's a wish prayer for uh, Oreb and Zeb to not have a good ending. And uh, if you're going to make the Midianite nobles like Oreb and Zeb, then uh, that's uh, not good. Psalm 118, verse 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in nobles, than to trust in princes is how it's translated, but it's the Nadib. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in Nadib. Even the noblest of men, even the noblest of men, the object of your faith must be God and God alone. Even the noblest of your men will let you down. There will come a day, and if your faith is in government, you have an idol there that uh, you're a slave to. That's a problem. Psalm 146 and verse 3. Do not trust in nobles, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. All right. I'm almost out of time. Proverbs 17, not only do we have the nobles there in verse 7, the nobles come back in verse 26. I think I did it this way for a reason. It is also not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. And so here's the fool in verse 25. The foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. It is also not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. And so society, if it's upside down and... uh, and backwards, then your fools are punishing the righteous. And uh, you, pay, you pay a secular price for living the word of God. That's not good. When the noble and the righteous are struck down in your culture, in your society. Romans, uh, not Romans, Proverbs 19.6. Many will seek the favor of a generous man, and every man is a friend to him who gives gifts. And so the generous man... Gets a lot of friends. Why? Because he's generous, right? 
And, uh, you know, you win the lottery and you find out how many cousins you didn't know you used to have. And wow, look at that. I got popular all of a sudden overnight. And there's a reason why bribes work. And there's, uh, we'll talk about that next week when we get into bribery in verse 8. Um, Proverbs 25, 7. It is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower within the presence of a prince whom your eyes have seen. This is the, Jesus told this parable. Remember this one? Do not claim honor in the presence of the king and do not stand in the place of great men. Don't assume that you're going to be seated at the head of the table at the king's right hand. Just assume that you're the least important guy that was invited to this party. Just assume, in fact, just make that assumption that your invitation was kind of a fluke, that you don't really belong there, and that you're the least important person on the guest list. And um, and so go to the end of the table, sit down, you know. So, uh, yeah, don't claim honor in the presence of the king. Do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here. In other words, when the king says, what are you doing way over there? No, 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 come up here. Sit by my side. Sit here. That's the, that's the preferable way to handle it. Because it's really, really embarrassing uh, for him to say, uh, excuse me, could you, could you move down there a little bit? We, I got important people that would need to sit here. For you to be placed lower in the presence of the Nadim, of the prince, of the noble, whom your eyes have seen. Isaiah 13.2. Come on, Isaiah. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, lift up a standard on the bare hill, raise your voice to them, wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the Nadim, of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exulting ones, to execute my anger. And this goes into, this is actually one of the deepest prophecies anywhere, Isaiah 13, about the fall of Babylon. And it starts with the nobles, with the Nadim. Nadim. We'll close with, uh, we already read Isaiah 32, 5 and 8. much earlier in this hour, but we have them again. No longer will the fool be called noble or the rogue be spoken of as generous. Verse 8 says, The noble man devises noble plans, and by noble plans he stands. All right, so deceptive speech is inappropriate for everyone, especially to the nobility. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for truth. Uh, Shape our thinking by these verses, Father. Open our minds to understand that we are to speak the truth and love one to another, that lying is not appropriate, uh, just personally, corporately, in our community, that lies are most unbefitting for our personal life, for our marriage life, for our family life, for our church life, for our public life. Father, um, also instill within us the generous spirit where we can be noble in the Lord, where we can be uh, generous one to another in the body of Christ, and generous to our uh, to our neighbors, and generous to our to our community. Might we be salt and light in Austin, uh, Texas, in the United States, and around the world, Father? Might we uh, might believers with doctrine be the most generous, gracious believers that uh, that have ever walked this earth? I thank you and I praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.